There was no issues. You pulled him out of his vehicle. You put him on the ground. You put your knee in his neck for almost nine minutes when he wasn't resisting and he died. He told you he couldn't breathe. Why did you not at that point uh, loosen up? Welcome back to the Better Call Clay podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we've got Aaron Perry in studio and we're talking the death of George Floyd and the fallout of that event. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Uh, if you would, just go ahead and introduce yourself real quick. Good to be with you again, buddy. Uh, my name's Aaron Perry. I am an attorney. I do criminal defense and now I'm uh, focusing more on personal injury law. Now we... Uh, so you're, you're in criminal defense, moving on to personal injury law. I'm also a criminal defense attorney, but that's not how we know each other. We actually know each other from our years back at the Brazoria County DA's office, uh, probably four years together. Uh, you worked there, what, four years? And then I'm there for 11. So during that time, we overlapped there. And we, uh, we had the good fortune. We had the uh, pleasure to be able to try a number of cases together, right? That's right. We worked together from 2012 to 2016. We were felony prosecutors. We prosecuted some of the most serious cases together, murder cases included. And, uh, you know, uh, prior to that, I, I actually worked as a state prosecutor in the state of Missouri. Okay. And had that experience for three years. And so, so you know, we've, we've had our uh, experiences for sure. So one of the things I want to mention though is is that on our next episode you and i are actually going to be detailing one of those cases that's going to be the tragic murder of dorothy conrad uh, we're going to talk about how that case unfolded without getting into that what i want you mentioned something interesting and i want to kind of pick your brain on it you uh you mentioned working in missouri right where did you work so i worked in cass county missouri okay it's where's that very rural uh county about uh 30 minutes uh, outside of kansas city Okay. And now Kansas City, that's an interesting place, right? I mean, it's, uh, first of all, it's in, I guess, the bulk of it's in Missouri, or is there any part of it in Kansas? Correct. So, you know, you've got uh, KC Mo and you've got KC Kansas, right? Okay. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it hits both borders, but the bulk of it, I would say, is in KC Mo. Okay. And, and, so, that, and that's Missouri. Correct. Right. And uh, there's some, there's some, I mean, there's some uh, tough neighborhoods there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a, uh, you know, there's a lot of diversity there, for uh, sure. but it, like any metropolitan area, it's got its, uh, it's got its tough neighborhoods. Uh, I mean, the people are phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, good people. Good people. Beautiful place. Right. And it's a lot of diversity, but you know, you, you see, um, whenever there are issues and issues that highlight the nation, mm -hmm. you're going to hear about it in Kansas city. Right. As you would expect, right. Okay. The people are smart. They're advanced, they're progressive, and, and they understand. So, uh, you know, I had the fortunate uh, for me to spend three years there in my life and to work for the government there and to be able to prosecute cases was wonderful, but just to make the friendships and to uh, know some of the people I know there was a blessing. Great sure. barbecue, right? Oh, barbecue, sports town, uh, just a phenomenal place. Okay. Now, um, the reason I've got you on today, one of the things, what we're talking about today is going to be uh, the George, George Floyd uh, incident, the, the, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, he's in, you know, a, a gentleman, African-American gentleman, uh, recently in the news here. We've, I mean, we've all seen the video. You, you know, by the time you're listening to this podcast, you've, 
you've probably seen a video, you've heard about it, you, you, re- you know generally what's going on, but in case you don't, uh, George Floyd uh, killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota uh, by the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, one officer in particular, um, and basically during a, an arrest gone wrong, uh, they are restraining him, end up uh, what looks like killed him by strangling him, uh, one officer with his knee in his neck. That's right. You know, Clay, you and I have been trained. We worked as prosecutors first. Right. right. We had many years of experience working for the government, and we got to prosecute criminals who we believed, beyond a reasonable doubt, committed crimes, correct? Okay. And now we are criminal defense attorneys. So we have had the, the, the pleasure and the blessing of, of being on both sides of this thing, right? This is a case that is so interesting and it is highlighting our nation right now and it is and it should be right for good reason so let's talk about that one of the there's three things i want to cover today um first thing is i want to talk about uh your time in missouri your time in texas our time in in both prosecution and criminal defense is there or or have you know do we see have we seen uh this you know have we seen systemic um racial uh, or systemic racism in the justice system. First of all, have we seen it? What's it look like if it's there? Uh, I also want to talk about basically you you see this video for the first time, Officer Chauvin um, right. with his knee in George Floyd's neck. Uh, you watch the full however long it lasts, eight minutes, seven, you know, nine minutes. Uh, you see the aftermath unfold right there on, on the, the screen that you're watching um, as a former prosecutor and as a current defense attorney, what are your thoughts? Are there charges to be filed? What charges are appropriate? How do you go about prosecuting that case? How do you go about defending that case? Um, And then finally, I think the question I would ask and what you and I are gonna talk about is, let's say you end up being this officer's defense attorney. It's not an unpopular, I mean, it's not a popular job. You're gonna be hated as much as he is probably um, how do you do that job? I mean, is it, is it an important job to do and, and, and how do you go about doing it? So let's talk first about racism and systemic racism in the justice system. Is that something you've ever seen in your career? I appreciate the question, Clay, and it's a difficult question, but if we're being honest, you know, one incident is enough, right? And we have seen multiple incidents that have been highlighted across the country and it's quite sickening to see. Right. And if you if you look at the, uh, you know, for me, just here recently. Right. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're looking at the bird watcher incident that happened in Central Park. I mean, how, how bad is that? Right? right. Right. You've got a guy who's not doing a damn thing wrong. Minding his own business. Minding his own. Watching business, birds. Watching birds. Right. And you've got this, uh, you know, we'll call her a scoff law. Right. Oh, I goodness. mean, she's a despicable human being. Right. <laughs> yeah. she's, she's over there and she's she's. First of all, she didn't have her dog on a leash, and you're supposed to have your dog on a leash in Central Park. Bad, bad. But to use that kind of threat to be caught on camera and to do what she did and to to put somebody in a position where they're going to be falsely arrested because you want the narrative to read a certain way is is horrible. Right. And, And, you know, as a former prosecutor, and I know you would agree with me, she needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent for making a false report. I would think so. For me, on the, the systemic racism, you know, I, I remember being a young prosecutor, and, and, you know, we've got these probable cause statements, you know, and, and for those listening at home or, or catching us on, on the podcast, 
what a probable cause statement is, is it's just a short narrative that basically gives a, another, a judge, a third party detached magistrate, enough information to decide whether or not somebody has possibly been involved in a crime, whether a warrant should issue, whether, you know, whether there's enough, enough, uh, what we call probable cause to keep somebody detained or arrest them. Right. I mean, so that's a real simple document, right? I remember as a young prosecutor though, I, you know, get one of these in in my hand. I've got a new case. I go to read, okay, what did this person do? And I I start reading the probable cause statement. And the first line of the thing says, you know, you're a fiant. And that's a fancy way of saying I, you know, your officers basically saying I saw this. And, and, And usually they refer to themselves in the third person. So it says you're a fiant, observed a suspicious looking black male. And then it launches into what happened next. And that always left me, I always left with, and I remember that case, and I I remember saying to myself, well, what was suspicious about this black man? I mean, what, was it the fact that he was black? Was he in like a neighborhood where the officer didn't believe that he belonged? And so for me, that was my first experience with, is is there a systemic racism in the justice system? Is it something that's sort of covert that we don't even realize is there? Yeah, I, I think it exists, Clay. I think it's it's out there, and it's something that must be addressed. I mean, thank God for body cams, right? right. Thank God for right. cameras. And it's unfortunate to say that, right? It's well, and, so, and cell phone cameras, too. I mean, now we got people, sure. people recording this stuff. If we don't have those cell phone cameras in this George Floyd incident, I mean, do we even know what happened for sure? Yeah, and, and that's, uh, you know... It's a sad situation, yeah. uh, but, you know, thank God that we, we had the cameras and, you know, you asked my opinion on the case, you know, having been on both sides. So this. let's, let's talk about that then. Uh, let's segue into the next section, which is you see this video, Aaron, what are your initial responses? What are your initial reactions to, you know, there's a call for charges to be filed. First of all, are, is there a crime here? And if so, what is it? Both you and I have both been what's called on-call prosecutors, right? right? Where we've been on call and you hear about a certain situation and officers might contact you and say, has a crime been committed, right? So the initial details that I receive is that there is uh, allegedly a counterfeit bill that has been passed at a convenience store to buy cigarettes. Okay, right? and this is the George Floyd incident? Correct. Okay. Right, so... Whatever it was, $20 bill, whatever it might be. But uh, Mr. Floyd is pulled over, right? They're wanting to investigate to see what's going on. And my initial question is, um, what kind of an investigation has been done? And first of all, do we even, are we even questioning the right person? Correct. I mean, how did we, how did we get to Mr. Floyd's car? How did we get to Mr. Floyd's car? Is he just a black man who fits the description? You've sent four officers out to the scene right. to investigate this uh, alleged counterfeit bill. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know how difficult those cases are. All right. right? If, even if there was a counterfeit bill, did he know that right. he had it? Were we talking about multiple counterfeit bills? Or right. is there a counterfeit bill that was passed for, for cigarettes? Okay, but you've, at this point, uh, pulled him out of his vehicle. What I can tell you with certainty from the vi- visual evidence that I've seen, there was no resisting. Right. There was no resisting that occurred. Right. And so in fact, he, he sat down, had a conversation with the officers for a while. Then he ends up uh, on the ground, almost of his own accord, laying prone. Right. Yeah. Doesn't look like he's uh, drug or forced to the ground. 
you know, and I will tell you this as, as a lawyer and having been on both sides, we're very cautious to make sure that we have seen all the facts before we make a determination. Right. There's always going to be surprises. Right. And there may be surprises in this case. I, mean, I think we've, we've heard there may be some evidence. They might've known each other from a, you know, relationship at working together at the same club that, that may or may not be the case. But or, I can and, it, and it may or may not matter. May not matter. Right. To me, it doesn't matter. Right. Just look at the evidence. Did he resist? Right. Why did you take the measures that you took in and, that scenario? And we're talking Officer Chauvin at this point. Why is he doing what he's doing? Now, off camera, you or before we recorded, we were talking about this, and, and you mentioned something interesting about his posture while this is going on. What was that? One thing that really bugged me watching the video, mm -hmm. and I can't get it out of my mind, is mm -hmm. I see that he has got the officer Chauvin, or ex-officer now, right, has got his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. Which is not a good place, but, you know, that's, I mean, even... Not a good place. But that's not what stood out for you. The thing that bugs me is that there's no resisting, number one. Okay. And number two, the officer has got his hands in his pocket. Okay. It appears to me that he knows, he is aware that the camera is on him. So to put his hands in his pocket is a show to say, hey, I'm not doing anything forcefully. Right. But if you really are honest and have integrity about the video, then watch it. And you're watching it. What do you see? Watch it and slow it down. And I know you've seen it. We've discussed it. But there appears to me to be force and a thrust. And if you watch the knee and you watch Officer Chauvin, he is applying pressure without a doubt. And I challenge anybody to have a knee applied to their neck for almost nine minutes and to survive that. Right. It's, it's horrific. It, to me, it was almost as if, as if he was grinding uh, while, while looking casual up top. It's as if he's using his hips and his knee, and he's almost grinding it into George Floyd's neck. If you watch it, and I agree with you, uh, you can see that there is force that is being applied. Right. And that, that makes me the most uncomfortable. It's, it's his, um, you know, somebody described it as smirk. I don't know if there's, you know, maybe, maybe not. But what bugs me the most is watching his hands in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And I watch that knee. And if you watch it, you can see that force is being applied. And it's uncalled for because he wasn't resisting. So to keep the knee on for as long as he did, what was the purpose of that? Right. Was he not detained? Did you not have three other officers with you? I think was he that, such a threat to you? I think at that point he's even handcuffed, right? Yeah. And, you know, even if he's not handcuffed. Does it matter? The guy didn't resist. Right. The guy didn't resist. Right. And, and unfortunately, he's telling you, I can't breathe. And right. those are words that, that you're hearing. Right. And absolutely they should be echoed because... God forbid any of us are in that position right? where we can't breathe and you have somebody putting their knee on your neck for almost nine minutes and even to the point where he's gone, right. the paramedics have arrived, there's still force being applied, unacceptable and he needs to be prosecuted. So uh, that begs the question, right? Gets us to our next point. You're the prosecutor. This, this lands on your desk. You're the first person to review it for just basically a charging decision. If, if we're going to prosecute this officer, ex-officer, and what are we going to prosecute him for? All right. I'm going to have to take a drink for this one. I hope <laughs> you don't mind. No, go ahead. 
Yeah, a little four roses bourbon, by That's the right. way. Yeah, a little uh, Dutch courage, as they say. I don't know. It's tough. And, yeah. And 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 the because this, this is not going to be a popular decision. It's One not. way, either way you slice it, it's going to be a tough decision. It's not because you know that when we were prosecuting, you never wanted somebody to Monday morning quarterback you. Right. You never wanted somebody to say, I, I, sh you know, you should have done this or you should have done this, you know. But I can tell you that, in my opinion, when I saw the charges come out, I thought he was undercharged. And to to say, hey, you know. And, uh, and so let me stop you before we go much further. What do you mean undercharge? Well, you know, you're charging, and and, and I'm not, uh, you know, full disclosure. I'm not licensed in Minnesota. And, and neither am I, so I don't right. know the laws there like I do in Texas. Right. But we are, you know, uh, criminal defense attorneys who are very familiar with the law. Mm -hmm. and, I'm, and me, personally, I'm licensed in three different states. Okay. And we are aware of the law right and we are aware of what murder means right right and when you're going to charge somebody with third degree murder which is appears to me be is the lowest degree right right and he has had his knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes who has not resisted that to me is intentional okay and that would indicate that this charge needed to be a little bit higher so in Texas, the way it shakes out is we have intentional or knowing killing, which is what is our murder charge. And then we have a reckless killing, which is what we refer to as manslaughter. And that's our, uh, our second degree charge. Now, we don't really have a third degree homicide charge in, in Texas. Now, we, ha we do have a criminally negligent homicide, but that's stage L felony. We're not talking about that. That's when you... That's when you kill somebody and you're, you know, you're texting while you're driving, or that's, you know, you, you do something really reckless and it results in somebody dying. This is not that scenario. This is either manslaughter or murder in Texas. So this is either an intentional and knowing killing, or this is an extremely reckless killing. And so which one fits for you? At Let's say in Texas, which one fits I, for you? And, that, and that's the thing. I've gone over this in my mind and I keep watching the video and I don't see it as reckless. You know, reckless to me has a different definition. For me, he knew what he was doing. He intended to apply the pressure that he did. It was no threat towards the officer, but yet he decided that it was in his best interest to apply intentionally that knee to uh, Mr. Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. Why? Why? Because he passed, he allegedly passed the $20 counterfeit bill. Right. Uh, for me, it doesn't pass the test. You're not talking about a situation where you've been called onto a scene for a possible murder, a possible assault, anywhere where there's weapons. There's no armed suspect no, here. No, he had no he weapons on. So, uh, so you're, so what you're saying is, is, uh, you know, we're not dealing with a violent situation here. There's no armed suspect. Uh, but I, I guess I, I you know, I, I wonder, uh, let's say we do have an armed suspect and we disarm him and then this scene unfolds. I don't know, that, does that really change the, that doesn't really change the calculus, does it? Doesn't change it. You've got, you know, you've got backup there. The right. situation's under control. You've got three other officers. You know that he's got no weapons in his possession right then and there. Um, you know, the situation- He's not, re he's not resisting anymore. He's not resisting. He's right. not resisting. And right. there's, there's no need. And, to me, it's very, very telling. There's a lot been made about this autopsy report. Right. And maybe you want to get into that a little bit, but you know, for me, it doesn't change things. Okay, okay? Let's, let's talk about that because the, uh, that's a piece of evidence that as prosecutors uh, or defense attorneys, we would use. And what we've got is an autopsy report that tells us, says to us, uh, 
wasn't strangled, wasn't uh, choked. What you know, didn't didn't lose, didn't didn't die because of this this knee in the neck. They they more attribute it to his underlying health conditions and just the the process of being restrained. Do you do you buy that? No, I don't buy it. And I and I will tell you that uh, uh, I would love to be the prosecutor on this case, and I would love to present this to a jury jury because you know. What we know is that Mr. Floyd was healthy before the arrest occurred, right? Okay. And, you know, maybe he had intoxicants in his system. I don't even know what that means, what he may or may not have had in his system. Maybe he might have had some form of heart disease. But the point is, is even if your autopsy report's going to come back and say that he wasn't strangled or asphyxiated, the point is that when you put your knee in his neck, for nine minutes, you absolutely caused his death. You contributed to his death. And I believe any competent prosecutor will be able to argue that. Okay. Because he was healthy before the arrest. There was no issues. You pulled him out of his vehicle. You put him on the ground. You put your knee in his neck for almost nine minutes when he wasn't resisting and he died. He told you he couldn't breathe. Why did you not at that point, uh, loosen up t- or t- uh, check him. You know, take a look at him. Check him. Yeah. The paramedics arrive. Adjust your uh, your uh, your restraint. You know, move your grip. I mean, restrain a different part of his body. Something. So, um, Aaron, you, I think you laid out a pretty good prosecution case, right? But that's. Uh, I mean, if we're if we're reading the political winds and we're uh, we're looking at the, if we're taking the pulse of the country, right? Um, Prosecuting this office, this ex-officer, officer, ex-officer Chauvin, that's the easy job, right? For sure. For sure. Now, there's another job, though, that has to be done in our justice system. Uh, it's a necessary job. It's, uh, it's sometimes a very unpopular job. And that's the job of the defense attorney, right? Not a popular job at times. Uh, and, and somebody is going to either, you know, I mean, they're going to either draw the the short stick on this, uh, or they're gonna, they're gonna agree to sign up for this because, you know, they either it's the right thing to do or, or they want to ensure that this guy gets a fair trial, uh, or they just want the fame the notoriety that goes along with defending him. I mean, that's not unheard of in our business. Uh, but somebody at some point is gonna sign on to this thing if they haven't already, and is going to be representing uh, this ex-officer Chauvin uh, at his his murder trial, his manslaughter trial. Um, so how do you do that as a defense attorney? What are you going to do if if it's you that gets if your number gets called to defend him? How do you how do you do that? What do you do? What it's do you good, argue? It's a good question. It's a tough question because you know that the nation is watching. There's a lot of publicity, and the odds are going to be stacked against you, right? So. What do you do to ensure that your client gets a fair trial? For me, hey, the first thing would be to make sure that exactly that, that the client gets a fair trial. And whatever you need to do to make sure that whatever jury that you select to be this jury has never heard anything about this case. So right out of the gate, we're talking procedural stuff. We're talking uh, transferring venue, moving out of Minneapolis to another location in the state of Minnesota, something more rural. Uh, You're talking, in order to get a jury of 12 people that have never heard anything about this case, I would imagine you're going to have to avoid ire, which is put through jury selection, I mean, literally hundreds of people. 
So you're going to have a very extensive voir dire. Um, you're going to need to file any kind of evidentiary motions, you, you know, procedural stuff. But that's the easy stuff, right? I mean, that's the stuff that, that we all know from law school to do. But at the end of the day, you take this video and this evidence. How do you argue this? For, well, first of all, what, what advice do you give your client on how we play this case? Do we plead guilty to, to some charge? Do we work out a plea bargain? Or do we take this case to trial? And, and what do you, and then we'll get into the next facet of it. What do you, what do you do? Another great question. You know, Clay, that, uh, before you get into the fight, there's a mini series of battles before the war. Right. So what you mentioned is that you need to do whatever's best for the client. How, how many people at this point would you say in Minneapolis have not heard of this case? It's all over. The yeah, coverage is all over. You'd so be hard pressed to find anybody that doesn't know about this case so you, and, and hasn't already formed an opinion. Exactly. So you've got to do what it takes to make sure that your client gets a fair trial. But when it comes to the, to the point when all of those many battles have occurred and you're lining up for war, there has to be a point where that discussion occurs with your client. And we have our opinions, and the client ultimately is going to have his opinion. And we know that ultimately, while we advise the client, the client makes the final decision whether to go to trial or not. If this case is a case that the client decides is going to proceed to trial, you are going to have a war. Yeah. So what do you what do you do? What do you see any arguable defense in this case? Well, I think you, you're going to have to use that autopsy report for sure. You're going to have to say that uh, more details, more facts have to unfold. But what I've learned, and I'm sure you can attest to this, is that in trial, whoever tells the best story and whoever presents their case the best, whoever is able to put the best experts on, whoever is able to present ultimately the best cases, the person is going to win, right? Facts are the facts. You can't change the facts. But as a defense attorney, you have got to do whatever it takes to make sure that your story is presented and that that jury understands what you are arguing. And that might be that, hey, um, maybe what appears on video is not exactly what occur occurred. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that that's no, no. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. my opinion you, and it's my personal opinion. I want to make it clear. You share a different belief of the case, for uh, sure. but I'm putting you in the hot seat. Yes. And I'm asking you to be the devil's advocate. I'm asking you to, to, to be the zealous advocate for this, this person that's accused. Uh, not unlike, you know, um, some of our early forefathers were called upon to represent British soldiers who had massacred people in Boston. Uh, not unlike uh, army officers during World War II who had the unenviable task of representing Nazi war criminals. I mean, in the history of lawyers, right? I mean, uh, some good lawyers have had to had to do some work that probably wasn't popular with a lot of people, or and maybe wasn't even popular with them. Uh, but that's the nature of the beast. You don't always get to choose the work. I mean, if this guy was suddenly declared indigent, I'm on the court appointed list. I get I get the, I draw the black bean. I get I get appointed as his court appointed lawyer. I can't just mail it in. I mean, my, my ethical duty is to zealously advocate for him. You know, Clay, if it's me and I'm defending this case, I get a big whiteboard and I get the marker and I'm going to put together some issues that I think are going to muddy the waters a little bit mm -hmm. and to make sure that the jury gets confused because you and I both know 
when you are trying a case and you're a state prosecutor, you need all 12 jurors to convict. Right. When you're a defense attorney, it only takes one. It only takes one. Let me repeat that. So what does that mean to me? What that means to me is that if I can create one, two, three issues that can muddy the waters a little bit, that can get that individual thinking tied up, then I might be able to create a mistrial. In my professional opinion, having seen the visual evidence in this case, and let me repeat, only the visual evidence in this case, right. I believe that that's what it would take. Your best shot is to get a mistrial, is to, be, is to use the autopsy report, to use um, whatever it takes to make the jury think a little bit, to say, hey, you know, this is not what it appears to be, and maybe, maybe, you can get a mistrial. Uh, getting a not guilty in this case is going to be very, very, very difficult. Right, Un- unlikely, really. I mean, I, I think we're, I think what we'll see unfold is is this uh, this ex officer will be convicted, uh, whether it's murder, third degree murder, or whether it's manslaughter. I think they've filed both charges against him. Uh, again, I think uh, a lot of people are looking at it saying he was undercharged. Now, I'm always a little more cautious as a prosecutor or was, and so I don't like to over charge my case or try to oversell my case. So I don't know. I'm still on the fence about whether it was overcharged or not um, or undercharged or whether it should have been higher charges. But uh, anyway, lots of stuff going on here. We've had rioting since then. Uh, Definitely a a big time national case. Lots of stuff uh, still to unfold. Uh, This autopsy report, I think, going to be one of the key things, one of the key issues in the case. I've heard some talk that their uh, family's asking for a second autopsy. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. If there's a change of opinion, then you'll have essentially the dueling medical examiners at this trial and which one carries the day. I think, uh, you know, that'll be the interesting thing to see. So listen, Aaron, I want to thank you uh, for, for joining me today. Uh, won't be the, won't be the last time we have you on. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I've enjoyed the four roses bourbon with you. Um, let, uh, let our listeners at home, uh, wherever they are, let them know how, how to get in touch with you. They well, got, I, if, they've I, got a, if they've got a criminal case, personal injury case, how do they find you? I appreciate it, Clay. It's been a pleasure being with you today, and I've enjoyed the bourbon as well. Yeah. So anytime you want to have me on your show, I would welcome it. Right. But if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can find me on AaronPerryLawFirm.com. That's one word, AaronPerryLawFirm.com, or HelpMeWithMyCase.com. And if you've been injured or if you've been wrongfully accused, contact me. Uh, you can find me on my, on my website. So I appreciate being with you, Clay. All right, Aaron. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, for those of you that have joined us, we want to we wanna thank you today for uh, joining us on the Better Call Clay podcast. And once again, I, I would remind you, uh, you're looking for me. You can find me at claycaldwell.law. Uh, also, uh, through my Facebook page, Law Office of John C. Caldwell. Uh, but uh, more importantly, if you've uh, ever found yourself in trouble out there, I just remind you that uh, you better call Clay. <laughs>